Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Good morning, church. This morning, we're going to continue our sermon series entitled From Brokenness to Blessing. The sermon series is is a is based on the eight blessings or the eight promises or beatitudes of Jesus. Uh, he declares these in his first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Pastor Gary said this, and I agree with him 100%. He said that these eight blessings of Jesus turn worldly wisdom upside down. It takes the unexpected and it turns it into our expectedness. This week we're looking at the fifth beatitude, Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What does blessed mean? What does it mean to be blessed? Blessed are the merciful. Well, to be blessed means to be supremely happy, perfectly content. Blessed to the max, one one commentator wrote that it was an enviable kind of happiness. It makes me think like as the outside world looks in at the believer, that he sees something that he doesn't understand, that he doesn't recognize. The same whirlwinds outside are the same whirlwinds inside. The same difficulties, the same circumstances are on the outside are on the inside, in that person's house, in that person's life. Yet there's this unbelievable happiness, this this incredible contentment. Jesus said that those who are merciful people will, are truly blessed, and they themselves will be shown mercy. I believe what you're looking at here is something cyclical. This is the first beatitude that gives us this idea that our mercy, that the, the mercy that we give, comes back to us. But it actually doesn't start there. If we'll remember that these Beatitudes are sequential steps to our, our spiritual growth, our health, and our wellness in the spirit, we'll realize that by the time we get to the fifth one, we've already kind of approached each one and grown into a new season of our spiritual growth. By the time we get to this step, we're changed. We've received, or we've seen at least, God's mercy. It goes sort of like this. Recognizing his great mercy causes us to become people of great mercy, thereby becoming God's great conduit of mercy to a broken world. I went to, uh, I went to the, my, my cyber guru, Google, and he defi- uh, Google defines it this way. Mercy is defined as compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone to whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. That's a good definition. So mercy is choosing to forgive when you really, when the right is that you could do harm. It's to be compassionate towards someone that you might think, well, you know, you've made your bed. Now sleep in it. It's compassion to that person. They're undeserving of your compassion, of your forgiveness. They've actually done harm. 
Mercy is a true act of love. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for a friend. And the long and short of that is that mercy befriends those who don't deserve our friendship. Man, that's a big concept. Mercy befriends those who do not deserve my friendship. You might be thinking to yourself, well, how in the world am I going to do that? Uh, I'm a PK. My dad was a preacher, and so I remember sitting in, in churches all over New York and Staten Island and listening to my dad preach and wondering, all right, so you told me I need to, but how do I do this? How does this actually happen in this broken soul? I would think things like, you have no idea what that guy said to me or what that girl did to me. You have no idea the pain I've endured by the hand of this person. You have no idea. How can I possibly conjure up or bring up mercy when there's no mercy in me and I don't feel that there's any mercy given to me? Well, you're not alone, and it's a good question. Um, C.S. Lewis asked the same question. He wrote this. Mercy is to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life, to keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son. And he ends it with, how, how can we do it? As we look back over the previous Beatitudes, we need to notice something. As I said before, these are sequential steps of growth. We're not simply blessed because we come poor in spirit. Or because we mourn. It says blessed are the mourners, blessed are the meek. It's not that we are not blessed simply because we find some meekness in ourselves or that we hunger and thirst, seek after God. That's not it at all. We come to this understanding because we choose to be the recipients of the promise that comes with each step of growth. Yeah, we come poor in spirit. We definitely come poor in spirit or we get nothing. However, it is the mercy of God that gives us the salvation that we own. It's the mercy of God that brings us into a kingdom. It's the mercy of God that brings the mourner Comfort. It's the mercy of God that brings restoration to the person who comes meek and says, I want to defer my, my, my strength to you. I, I want to put mine aside and take yours. I know that you know better than I do. And the broken places in our lives start to be healed and mended. The broken relationships start to be mended. Oh. And then we start wanting more. Who doesn't want more of that? The broken yesterday can be fixed and mended. Who doesn't want more than that? And we begin to seek and ask and knock. We begin to hunger and thirst. And God says, I feel the mercy of God fills you. That is something to be desired. That is something that brings true, massive happiness contentment that says, I know that God has my best interest in mind. I can put aside all my defenses. I can tear down my walls. I can put my weapons away because God has this problem in my life fixed. 
I am a recipient of God's recovery. Thank God. And so the question was, how can we do it? Well, the answer to that is, well, we can't. Not in ourselves. And we can either choose to continue to live on each and every day, bearing the burden of this world, or we can begin to give it over to God, one or the other. We receive God's mercy when we believe in and become the recipient of God's promises. That's what happens to us. We begin to experience God in a greater way. The promises of God become our experience, not the brokenness of this world. And so we change. It's easier to be merciful when we've received mercy ourselves. Because of this, we can understand how receiving God's mercy for ourselves empowers us to be merciful. This text gives us three reasons to be merciful according to God's mercy. In the second chapter of Peter, he, he expounds on this blessed are the merciful, this fifth beatitude, and instructed the believers scattered throughout Asia that since they had received God's mercy for themselves, they could now live his mercy out among the nations. This is what Peter is going to tell us today. We're going to take this idea that Peter had 2,000 years ago, and we're going to bring it over the bridge, and we're going to make it apply to ourselves today. How do we become a people of mercy? Let's read 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into the marvelous light, his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Behold, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation." How receiving God's mercy empowers us to be merciful? Receiving God's mercy empowers us to be merciful because by God's mercy, we are his chosen people. Take a look at verse 9. If you've got a pen, circle these. Who are you? I want to break into a who song there, but yeah, I'm not going to. I'm going to spare you all. all right. who, who are you? Some of us older guys and ladies got it. <laughs> circle. A chosen race. Whew, put a big circle around that. Because once you were not a chosen race. Put a big circle around a royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people of his own possession. What is, what is, what is Peter saying to them? He's encouraging. He's exhorting them. Before he tells them about mercy, he wants to remind them, who are you? Remember who you are. Chosen, select, a chosen race, a select offspring. 
a royal priesthood. This is a fraternal word, fraternity, the order of priests. A holy nation, sacred, physically pure, morally blameless. Man, these are some of the things we go to sleep at night wondering how, how come we can't just live up to what God wants us to live up to? He says, you're already that. With all your faults, with all your failures, with everything that plagues this physical life, God has made you a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people of his own possession. You've done nothing to achieve that. That is mercy. I can't think of a more merciful thing for God to give me than those identities completely undeserving of them. God's own people and uh, possession. Look at verse 10. He calls us that. He says that we are his possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So this word in the Greek had, a, uh, had one word that stood, way, stood out to me. It was, it was peculiar. How many people have ever heard that Christians are a peculiar people? And I always kind of thought, well, I don't want to be a peculiar person. I don't want to wear sandwich boards and get a bullhorn out on the corner and start, you know, turn or burn, you know, stuff like that. That's what I thought peculiar was, you know. No one wants to join me after the service? No? Okay. All right, we're a peculiar people. What does that mean? It's peculiar in this way, that when the world looks at the person who's truly transformed by the mercy of God, he's a rare thing. It's unfamiliar. They don't know what to make of it. Remarkable. And this, so valuable to God that he was willing to pay the ultimate price for us. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says this, you do not belong to yourself for God bought you with a high price. Amen. Amen. No greater love, no greater mercy, no greater forgiveness, no greater compassion than Christ has laid his life down for us. Verse 10, he talks about receiving mercy. Because we were people who had not received mercy. Now we are people who have received mercy. He actually even said, before, you weren't even a people. You were just like individuals, like, you know, like all over the place. You know, you do this and you do this and you feel this way and you feel that way and you believe this and you believe that. And... But he's taken all those chaos in, in life and he's brought us in to be a people. It often occurs to me when we go to our community groups, it often occurs to me that God has brought complete strangers into my home and made us a family. We were not a people, but now we are a people. We were not people of mercy, but now we are people of mercy. It's, it's incredible to me that Jesus lays these things out so perfectly, so sequential, so much a ladder to our spiritual growth that if we find it hard to find mercy in ourselves, then we need to look at the one right before. And if we find it hard to find that in ourselves, look at the one before. Are you meek? Are you? Have you deferred your strength to God? 
Well, maybe that's where you're stuck. Maybe you're stuck at the poor in spirit. Yeah, I asked Jesus into my life when I was eight years old, but, you know, I really didn't need to be saved for much, you know. I'm a pretty good guy, pretty good girl, you know. I did that. The gospel came with no, no transparency to me. I accepted Christ because I didn't want to go to hell. But I wasn't aware of the transparency that I needed to come to Christ with. That first one, come poor in spirit, destitute of my own ability to fix my problems and my broken life, my broken heart, because it's been broken time after time after time again. This, this is a beautiful statement Peter makes. And this idea is certainly the high water mark of God's mercy. Here it is. That he would take a filthy, sinful people and make them a holy nation. That God would purchase broken vessels and restore them. That is a high water mark of mercy. So what am I saying here? Being merciful begins with receiving mercy. So many of us can go through these steps and never really see the mercy that we've received. But the key is right there. The key belongs right there. What you receive truly makes it almost impossible for you not to give it back out. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old, the old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. We are peculiar. We are different. We should be. This mercy is greater than we can know, making us more than just a new, making us more than just new, but also God's very own family. Romans 8, 15 through 17 says this, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. We cry, Abba, Father. The training wheel fell off my bike. Abba, Father, this broken heart can't be mended. Abba, Father, I can't do away with the reputation that I've destroyed or the integrity issues that no one can find a good integrity in me anymore. Abba, Father, help me. That's what we're saying. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What is that suffering in this context? Suffering through the mercy. Realizing that it is, it is really mercy is only when you're, when you're showing forgiveness and compassion to the broken like Christ did for us. I love recovery shows. I love uh, Fixer Upper with, uh, with, the, with the games uh, couple there. Love them. He's hysterical, and, I, and she's as sweet as pie. 
I love overhauling. Anybody ever seen overhauling? Um, Chip Foose designs these cars. He takes these heaps and redesigns them. And I'm amazed at the difference between the befores and after. I'm amazed at the willingness to take something that seems literally impossible and actually put your time and effort and love into it. Is your mercy. It doesn't deserve it. It looks like it needs to go back to the junkyard where it came from. Yet, somebody will tinker through this thing and brush out all the, all the imperfections and make this thing the perfection that it was supposed to be when it was made in the first place. Isn't that where we're going? To be what God created us to be, not what this world has beat us down to be? I think so. It makes me love the process of recovery in me. And when I decided to, to uh, pastor this, this recovery group, uh, honestly, I, I was under the impression that recovery was for the alcoholic or for the drug user. <laughs> come to find out that as I was taking people through the 12 steps or through the 8 steps, I come to find out there's stuff buried up in me. There's stuff that doesn't belong in here anymore. There's stuff that I wasn't able, I wasn't even aware of some of the things that came up and cropped up. And you know, this was the thing coming to the point where I said to everybody else, I need recovery just as much as anybody else does, was actually a hard thing for me to say because I was raised to believe that the pastorate was supposed to stand up someplace higher than everyone else, and they don't. We don't. We are co-strugglers, and we need God to mend the broken places in our lives just like anybody else does. In order to be merciful, we need to receive the promised blessing. We need to receive his mercy. He's ready to restore you. Are you ready to be restored? And that's the big question here today. When we leave here today, that'll be the big question. Number two, the second way God's mercy empowers us to be merciful is because by God's mercy, we can overcome our sinful passions. This kind of may as well be a therefore. Having received mercy, I now urge you. It's not in there, but it may as well be in there because it's in the context of the mercy we've received. The identity that God has given us. It may as well have a therefore in front of it because it is that. I urge you. Parakaleo, one of my one of my few Greek words. It's all Greek to me except for that one. I, I know what that one means. It means to come alongside, to be close. I urge you, I exhort you, I, I, I'm calling you close to me. Calling you close to those who have received mercy, so that you'll see what it's like to show mercy. And then he goes, um, and then he goes into sojourners and exiles. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. I think that's self-explanatory. I think sometimes when we get mired up in our own issues, mired up in the brokenness of this world. Let me flip on the news. 
at any given time. You can watch a little CNN, a little Fox News. You can, you can take, you know, take from everywhere. Flip it on. What do you see? You see a world that has no will and no ability to show mercy. It's like a Punch and Judy show. All day long, they're just at each other, at each other, at each other. You just turn that thing off. There's no mercy. And then we, we start to take sides. Well, I think they're right. Well, I think they're right. No, no mercy. God is calling us to something greater than that. Far greater than that. He's given us the ability to forgive. He's given us the ability to put aside the passions of the flesh, which would include these things, wouldn't it? The passions of the flesh. To kind of get your sign and get out there with all the protesters. Ah, you know, we want, we want whatever we want, you know. Isn't that some of the passions of the flesh that he might be talking about here? To, to, to put down the weapons because God has a weapon? To put down the offenses because that belongs to God and not to us? These are the things that wage war against our souls. Take a look at it there. You can underline that. To abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. It's going to hurt you. It's going to take you. It's going to take the mercy out of you. You're going to have to find a way. We're going to have to, if we, if we, if we take part in that, we're going to have to find our way back to what God has for us. How is it possible to abstain from sinful passions? This is the beauty of Christ's saving grace. It's the recognition of that mercy. The recognition of his grace. Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He's the giver of salvation and the sustainer, the guard. If you walk in the Spirit, you will not, you will not, how does it say here? Gratify the desires of the flesh. What if every single time something got you out of your rest as you go through life? What if something, what if every time something, you remembered the mercy of God to stay in the spirit and you remembered, what about the mercy of God? Well, you know, we got the races against each other. We got the, we got the political sides against each other. We got men and women against each other, kids and old people against each other. Everybody's against each other. What if we were just to stay in the spirit? And leave that stuff to the ones who do it best. Well, we would, we would not fulfill the passions of the flesh, right? They wouldn't, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't be there because we would be focused on what God has for us. That change that we're all looking for. I think, it, um, let's see, 2 Thessalonians 3.3 3. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. I think uh, we always have an evil one on our heels. We always have 
an enemy in hot pursuit of trying to undo what it is that God is doing in us. The Lord is faithful and he will establish you and guard you against that evil one. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 says this, the faithful love the Lord. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercy begins afresh each morning. It's a good, uh, there's a good reason for quiet time, I would imagine. Right there. Every morning you want to just kind of get with God because it says every morning. When we begin believing it, we begin living it. And that's the, that's the other thing. Sometimes we kind of think things, the promises of God are kind of like that, you know, for somebody else or for Bible characters. You're a Bible character. <laughs> it's not for Bible characters, it's for you. It's for me. These are, these are things that God wants to lavishly give us. But we got this committee in our head that keeps telling us, no, not you. You're too broken for God's blessings or God's promises. Your heart's too corrupted for God to work in you. You've been hurt too badly. You're carrying too many wounds. You're, you're helpless in this passion of the flesh. That's really basically where we're going here. His mercies begin afresh every morning. I don't care what you did yesterday. Today is a brand new day. This minute's a brand new minute. God's forgiveness is brand new every second of every day. We begin to profess things new, new things. We begin to say things about ourselves that God says about us already. We say, I am a holy nation. I am a chosen person by God. I am loved by God. I am his son, his daughter. His mercy is never ending for me. This way of thinking empowers us to recognize the things that God has done in our lives and therefore be merciful to other people who haven't gotten there yet. One of the hardest things in recovery ministry is getting people to recognize what God has said about them and to disown the things that he hasn't. I hear, well, I'm Steve, and I'm an alcoholic. How long have you been, how long have you been uh, sober? 30 years. I'm an alcoholic. I'm an angry person. I'm, I'm this, I'm that. And so we start to confess or profess the things that God says about us. It's healing to our souls. Are you experiencing his mercy? Like I said, I'll say yes and sometimes no. I struggle here. And so I try to always look at myself in the mirror of the last beatitude. And if I'm not getting that one right, I look at myself in the mirror of the one before that. All the way back to the beginning where, where I have to wonder, am I coming to Christ poor in spirit? Maybe I'm not. 
Maybe I need to say, I don't have the answers. I can't fix me. Only you can. And then I can start the process back over, mourn the problems that I've caused myself. You know, Ask for God to restore some of the things that need, that need to be restored in my life. Draw close to him. Receive his mercies anew every morning and overcome those temptations. And it will make you a more merciful person. The third way God, God's mercy empowers us to be merciful is it's because by God's mercy we can live honorably. Before I talked about the, the problem that maybe your past has left you with integrity problems or character issues. He says, live honorably in context of what I've told you before, in context of your, to, to who you are, live honorably. Verse 12. So now because God's everlasting mercy, we can overcome the passions and therefore live honorably in, in this life. When those we interact with see God's mercy, when they see it on display, this passage says they'll begin to glorify God. Maybe not with their hands up or singing songs at a worship service, but they'll glorify God to say, there is something different about you. I don't know what it is. That is a glory to God. When they can't figure out why you're different, live honorably. And they're going to have no choice but to glorify God because that honorably didn't come from you. It came from him. Your ability, your will to do anything that God has called you to do didn't come from your willpower or, or sticking your fingers in the proverbial bootstraps of life and yanking up hard. It didn't come that way. It comes because God endows us with it. We begin to do what God asks us to do and we begin to receive those blessings and those, and those promises that God has promised us. That's good news to me. Our power to live a lifestyle of honor and mercy come from God and are also imitating him. Comes by our imitation of him. Luke 6, 36 and 37 says, Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. That sound familiar? We have, a, we have another context. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those. Meaning, I wouldn't expect God to forgive me if I didn't forgive. And it's more like this. If I don't recognize God's forgiveness, I can't really give forgiveness. And if I can't give forgiveness, well, then I didn't recognize God's forgiveness. And therefore, I didn't receive anything. It's a little bit of a, a, little bit of a circle. What does it look like to live this lifestyle of mercy as God's chosen people? How do we put his mercy on display? Colossians 3.12 says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. Determine yourselves. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. makes me think of the parable 
Jesus tells. When Peter asks him, how many times should I forgive my, my brother? Seven? Maybe seven's good. Seven's good, right? No. Jesus says 70 times seven. And then he tells this parable. There was this man, and he owed the king his great sum of money. So he went before the king because the king wanted to make his accounting right, and, and, and the man couldn't pay. And so the king said, well, sell his wife, sell his children and everything he owns so that he can pay at least part of the debt. And the guy says, no, please, please don't sell my wife and children. Can you see yourself in maybe those shoes? I can. Can you imagine that somebody would sell your, your family members so that they could pay a debt? So the king had compassion on him, and he said, I'll forgive the entire debt. That would be a, wouldn't that be a, oh my God. Forgive the whole debt? You were just going to sell my wife and kids? I'm forgiving the whole debt. It says that this man went out, and he found a man who owed him near nothing. And it says he threw his hands around this man's neck and began to choke him, demanding this pittance back, this nothing back. Give me the money you owe me. And he said the king's servant saw him do it, and he went back to the king and said, do you know what this guy just did? Let me ask you a question. Did that man receive mercy or just expungement? Did he understand mercy or did he just see it as something else? Say, well, I guess the king is about to forgive. It's okay. The king's going to forgive me. Okay. And go on. Like, the, like he got rid of so much dirty laundry. So the king brings him back and he says, because you've done this hideous thing, we're back to square one. You still owe me the money, and I'm going to put you in jail until you can pay it. It says he put him with the jailer, and when you look at the Greek word, it means the tormentor. How many people are in torment when they can't forgive? How many people are in their own little prison of torment when they can't get past the hurts in their own lives? When they can't say, Jesus, you are hurt more than I'll ever be hurt, and so I'll take the hurt. I'll be okay with the, with the problem. I'm okay. Move on, give mercy, give forgiveness because God has given it to me. And that, if we could find a world that lives like that, which will be the heavens, it would be heaven on earth. We have to be a peculiar people, a different kind of people. I'll, I'll just, in closing, I'll say this. We cannot be merciful unless we receive mercy. And each one of these beatitudes, each one of these, these blessings of promise are one step where I say, yes, I will do it your way, even though I don't understand it. Because <laughs> there's sometimes I don't understand it. I wouldn't be telling you any great stories if I told you the worst things that have happened to us throughout our lives and the people who have stepped on our, on our suede shoes. I could tell you all of the times and they wouldn't be anything special to you because you're going through your own. We all have these hurts, these hang-ups, these habits, those things that we don't want to deal with. We push them down, and we learn how to live despite, in spite of them. 
And God's saying, no, let's dig these things up. Let's dig them up. Let's put them out on the table and let's heal this one and heal this one and heal this one and heal this one. And this is where recovery ministry is probably the most helpful because I've sat in church services my entire life. And when we speak in general, very often, the hearer doesn't apply what he needs to apply or what she needs to apply. I, I know I don't sometimes. But while we're in community, where we're in trusted community, and we begin to share things with other people, and we begin to go through these steps, these beatitudes, and we start to evaluate ourselves on, by these, well, well, then we start to find out that what we are doing is actually pulling out those old cards and putting them on the table and saying, look, it's a mess. And God's saying, I, I want to heal that. I want to heal this. This is with the benefit of having the transparency of recovery ministry. It's not about alcohol. As a matter of fact, even if you're a, an alcoholic or a drug user, I'm telling you that God is not taking his time to deal with your drug use or your alcohol. I'm telling you there's something underneath that that makes you an alcoholic. It makes you a drug user. It makes you a hater. It makes you all the things that you are, including myself. It makes me what I am when I'm at my worst. God wants to heal the thing in the front so the thing in the back goes away all by itself. Some of the eight principles of this, here, here, here's, here's what it is. It says, it's a, the acronym recovery based on the eight principles um, of the Beatitudes. Realize, or realize I am not God. I admit I am powerless to control my tendencies to do the wrong thing and my life is unmanageable. It's the reality step. I've got a problem and I need help. The E is earnestly believe that God exists. I believe that I matter to him and that he alone has the power to help me recover. This is the hope step. God is the answer. C is consciously choose to commit. I commit all my life and will to Christ's care and control. The commitment step. I'm giving my life to Jesus. The O is openly examine and confess my faults. I confess my sins to God, to myself, and to someone I trust. This is the housekeeping step. I'm casting my sins, my shame, my guilt on my Savior, Jesus Christ. And the V is the voluntary step. Voluntarily submit to make changes by God's power. I submit myself to every change God wants to make in my life and humbly ask him to remove my character defects. This is the transformation step. Will you take the transformation step? Be somebody you weren't yesterday by the power of Christ. Give to this world what you couldn't give them yesterday by the mercy of Christ. Believe that, he, that we are his chosen people, overcoming sinful desires by his power and living honorably. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are merciful and we thank you for loving us so much that you would give this mercy to us undeservedly. 
Father, I pray that as every ear is heard, that the heart would begin to saturate itself with this idea that your mercy on us, recognized, gives us every reason to be merciful. Lord, I pray that, that you would bless this church and each person in it. Lord, I thank you so much for this opportunity to come and speak today. In Jesus' name, amen.